Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Creepy and Geeky. And on this episode, which is a bonus episode, we are going to have a special guest. He is the managing editor of dailygrindhouse.com and uh, is also an author who has written the books uh, Our Lady of the Inferno and the new book Landis, A Real Man on 42nd Street. I think I got that wrong, right? The story of a real man on 42nd Street. Yeah, either one is good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Welcome, uh, Preston Fossil, to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. The format of the show that we've been doing so far is we usually take a couple of movies, usually with a similar theme, director, part of a series, something like that. And with special guests, I'm trying to have you guys choose some movies or maybe, you know, hash out what it is. And uh, you chose some uh, uh, out there movies, <laughs> uh, which uh, uh, yeah. which I appreciated. I knew I knew knowing who you were uh, on on Twitter and everything that you would have some uh, fun, interesting movies to uh, for me to watch and uh, for us to discuss. But first, let's let's talk about uh, Landis. You just uh, it just released today, and I I, I did uh, get it on uh, Kindle, and it, it dropped uh, last night at midnight. And wow, so, uh, cool. it, yeah, so immediately it was like right there on my tablet. And, uh, so I, t- I took a look, I read the, uh, the intro it already. It's great. I, uh, I, I think it's funny too, because I read Sleazoid Express, uh, the book back in the late nineties, I was going to uh, college, uh, for the first time I was a, a film major. So I was just like reading everything voraciously, all the the books on movies and stuff. So I was read, I read Lloyd Kaufman's book about trauma. Uh, I read Slezoid Express. I read books about transgressive um, uh, films and stuff. So I was reading just everything that I could get my hands on at the time. And uh, Slezoid Express, I remember that. And it wasn't until you had mentioned it on Twitter not too long ago that uh, I, I remembered it. It hit me. And I was like, oh, my God, I actually read that book. So I was I was definitely eager to uh, uh, check out your biography on uh, Bill Landis. I, I can't wait to crack into that a little bit more. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. It's, uh, it's uh, something that I've been working on now for almost four years. Uh, I read the Sleazoid book myself. It would have been 2003-ish. Uh, this, this major snowstorm hit Oklahoma. I was still in high school at the time, and they canceled classes for like three, four days. And the announcement came out at night. It was probably like seven o'clock at night. And, you know, the, the, all the local news stations are saying there's no school for at least, you know, the next couple of days. And me being like 17, my first response to that was, oh, I need to get in my car and drive to the video store and uh, stock up on tapes so that I've got stuff to watch sitting at home oh, yeah. the next couple of days. And so it, like, eight o'clock at night or so I'm driving in ice and snow to Hollywood video. (laughs) And at the time I was working my way through the cult section and it was the section at the back of the store. It was behind the horror section, right in front of the wall where they had the new releases. And it was really just the sort of catch all where they put the stuff that I think that either they didn't know what to do with it, or they didn't feel comfortable putting it with the rest of the movies. And so that's where I rented stuff like Blue Velvet and Freaks and Elvira. And this night when I go there, one of the tapes that I got was this movie called Heartbreak Motel. And the cover of the box is this really lurid, washed out photo of Shelley Winters 
holding a dead, blood-soaked Elvis impersonator in her arms. And so, of course, I had to rent that. (laughs) And I watch it, and I still remember to this day my immediate thought when the end credits rolled was, what the hell did I just see? And it's, it's not a good movie. It's not a defensible movie. It's, it's reprehensible, right. but it was just what the hell. And so I had to figure out where this thing came from, what I just saw. And I Google it. And pretty much the only response I got at the time, and you know, this, of course, is years and years before yeah. cult movie fandom really exploded online. The one hit I got on it was this Leesoid Express book. And so I ordered the book. And I had never heard of 42nd Street or Grindhouse Theaters. I had no idea that that yeah. whole subculture place was even a thing. And this just really opened my eyes to that and just introduced me to this whole new world of cinema and whole new world of people, even all the subcultures that grew up around the right. Dukes. And so really, if I had never read Bill and Michelle's work, his wife, Michelle Landis, who collaborated with the book on him, I never would have gone down the career path that I went down. And Hmm. when I found out that Bill died very young, passed away at 49 in 2008, I felt this kind of psychic debt to him that I wanted to tell his story and kind of bring him into the mainstream of horror discourse and out of the shadows. And so I've been carrying this idea with me in some form since like 2003, 2004 or so, and really actively working on it for the past three and a half years. And, uh, you know, I, I really hope that this succeeds in causing a kind of Bill Landis renaissance and causing people to rediscover his work and causing his reputation to be rehabilitated a little bit from the kind of cartoon character people remember from the final years of his life and, you know, restore his legacy as this really pioneering journalist. That's awesome. Yeah, I I think it's interesting too because um, you know, part of part of what what I was when I read the book, too, I was just coming off of because when I was going to school, I had just gotten married not too long before, so my wife had kind of kicked me into going going to school, going to college and stuff. Before I met her, though, I had been in a in a in a punk phase in my life, and so Sleazoid Express and. Uh, some of the other books on, uh, like I said, the trauma book, the transgressive films books and stuff like that spoke to a punk ethos in me at the time. And uh, I, I really enjoyed those. And especially just like that, just that, that, that gorilla movie making um, style of stuff. I didn't end up, uh, we had a, we had uh, my son within the first year of me going to school. And so uh, school for me kind of petered out. My wife ended up going on and becoming a teacher and everything. But uh, for me, uh, I just went and did other jobs and everything else. So uh, films have always still been a major passion of mine, but I just didn't explore filmmaking or anything like you did the, in, in terms of the, uh, the academic uh, writing side and everything, which is, is awesome. It's funny that we both you know, read the book, both got stuff out of it, and you took it in such a great direction, exploring the facets of his life and trying to go down that avenue and give him some due. And uh, I think that's awesome. It was surprising. You know, it was like dug deeper into it and really came to realize that when he started Sleazoid Express, he was really one of the only and one of the first people to be seriously writing about horror and exploitation criticism. And, you know, I talk about this in the book. Uh, Sleazoid came out within the same year that Fangoria premiered. And at the time you had 
really Fangoria and Famous Monsters of Filmland were the two big horror publications. And Famous Monsters was really nostalgia driven. It was really this kind of remember when, look back sort of magazine. Fangoria was sort of this precursor to the internet. That's where you got your news from. That's where you got your behind the scenes info from, uh, you know, on set pictures and interviews about uh, upcoming stuff. But it wasn't really a critical academic review type of journal. And it really speaks to something that's around the same time that the very first issue of Sleazewood Express came out. This was the same time that Roger Ebert was basically doxing Betsy Palmer for being in Friday the 13th. So, you know, horror was this thing that was, if there was a division between high and low art, horror wasn't even low art. It wasn't even art at all. It was just garbage. And then Bill came along and was one of the first people to say, no, horror and exploitation films are valid arts. They are a valid expression and really looked at them seriously and academically. And we're really seeing that now. That's that's kind of what horror journalism is now yeah. and has become. And I think that's Bill inspired a generation who then inspired another generation who either are the people writing now or who were inspired by that. And because of right. that kind of cascade effect, I don't really feel like a lot of people realize that Sleazewood Express and Bill Landis were the progenitors of this school of horror criticism. And then, of course, Bill also burned a lot of bridges in his final years, which I talk about in the book, too. And I also think that's probably partially responsible. Uh, But, you know, it's astounding the level of influence that he had on the way that we consume and think about horror and exploitation media today. Yeah, I hope I hope a lot of people pick up the book and read it and get some more uh, information on him and you know see what what kind of work he did and how it's influenced everybody today and like you said in in on the internet and how people are you know n- now uh <clears throat> critically uh, uh looking at movies and exploitation and horror and stuff so it, it it'll hopefully bring that shine that light on that you know and 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 uh, like i saw um i read in your introduction that yeah you got lucky that um in in terms of the one good thing that came out of COVID was that you were able to get a lot of this stuff. Um, finally, a lot of this information that you'd been hunting down for years and finally got some people to talk about stuff. So shining that light on him will hopefully shine the light on the other people who were involved in that kind of stuff um, during that era. And uh, really like, you know, that's the thing is like, I know there's books out there. I know there's writings out there about 42nd street and grindhouse cinema and stuff like that. But it does seem to be because it was so sleazy and everything else that a lot of people just don't take it seriously. And it, it'll be nice to see if, you know, stuff like your work and hopefully what other people will do, especially, um, you know, with what you guys are doing at daily grindhouse that you guys will, you know, you guys are already highlighting a lot of that stuff and, you know, hopefully that'll continue on and we'll, we'll get a more definitive history and, and get to talking to some of these people who were involved in it, you know, when it was happening. Yeah, I really hope so. Uh, you know, one, one of the, there were probably two big hurdles in putting this together. One of them was that a lot of people who knew Bill didn't necessarily want to talk about him, you know, going back to that earlier thing about burning a lot of bridges in his last years. And then right. the other hurdle was that a lot of people from Bill's days are dead now. 
Uh, a lot of them got taken out in the 80s and 90s, either through drugs or that that first wave of the AIDS pandemic. And then just in the ensuing years, because of the lives and the lifestyles that a lot of Bill's contemporaries lived, they unfortunately had kind of a short shelf life. Yeah. And it's it's morbid, but uh, Joel Reed dying is what really shook up the Grindhouse old guards uh, after he passed away. It's it scared a bunch of people from that milieu who realized, well, you know, these stories are dying. Uh, the remembrances of that era are slipping away and fading away. And a bunch of people who initially did not want to talk to me after Joel Reed died reached back out and said, OK, I'm ready to talk. And, you know, that's what really shook a lot of people out since got them going on record and really helping to put this together that's that's great i'm I'm glad that uh i mean not not that you know that helped that but yeah (laughs) that that at least people are talking about it because i mean you know like you said that as they're getting older and you know some of that old guard is dying off that you know they're realizing nobody's telling our story and nobody's telling it like we want it told and that's that's I think the most important part is because if you're looking at it from the outside and you're not getting their perspectives, then you're not getting the real story. And you're just getting you know the outsider's view in, and you, you need those you need that perspective. And so that's that's great that you know you've gotten some people talking. Maybe that'll start jumpstarting some other stories about everybody else. I really hope so. And I I think, too, that we're moving into a period, you know, you mentioned this, and it's a very uh, pertinent observation that uh, because of the kind of sleaziness of that atmosphere and environments, it's been a little bit more difficult to talk about, even as horror itself is kind of coming into the mainstream. And something that I realized through researching Bill's life, and I think that's been a major hamstring to more being known about that environment, is that there was a major intersection between exploitation film, the deuce, sex work, and then queer culture. Uh, A lot of these people were involved in pornography or prostitution in some way, and those are very kind of verboten, taboo topics Mm -hmm. even still to talk about. And then a lot of these people were also queer, trans, you know, Bill himself was bisexual, and we're really just entering a period in American history where we're able to talk about those things and bring those stories out into the open. And I really think that as there's less stigma around sex work and as queer people are getting more rights and coming more into the mainstream, that it's going to be easier to talk about exploitation cinema and the culture of the deuce and help to preserve these stories and, you know, really talk about them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, 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 you know, that was a great point because again, you know, we're talking about the sex work, the, you know, the, uh, the pornography, um, the queer culture that existed in the eighties, that is seen as, you know, especially in exploitation cinema and pornography and stuff that was, I mean, 42nd street has that sleazy reputation that just makes it those people who dealt with it probably haven't wanted to talk about it because it's been so stigmatized um, all this time that, yeah, it's definitely, I can see where that's, that's been an issue for them for a long time. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully again, hopefully your book will help uh, push that out and, you know, get some people talking and, and, and like you said, with the, the, with the cultural changes happening, I think that, you know, we're definitely on, on target for stuff like that to, you know, being able to talk a little bit more openly about that kind of stuff without people getting, you know, up in arms about it. I mean, I'm sure people will still will because they always do about, you know, all this in general, but you know, it, it'll, it'll be nice to push it out there and be able to see some of that a little bit more. Yeah, I really hope so. 
Is there anything else you want to say about uh, the book, about Landis himself? Uh, uh, want to jump right into the movies? Uh, it's available in uh, paperback or ebook. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you're local brick and mortar independent bookstore carries biographies, you know, go in there, ask them to order it, support local business. And uh, thanks to uh, Encyclopocalypse Publications and Daily Grindhouse for uh, helping make this happen. And I uh, really hope that uh, people seek this out and read about Bill Landis and uh, come to appreciate him as much as I have. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, just like I said, just from, you know, what little I've talked to you about it already seems like a fascinating read. So I'm excited to dig into it. Thank you. All right. So you brought me two very weird movies. Um, <laughs> uh, I did a little bit of research on them. I, you know, Wikipedia is my friend. Uh, I donate to Wikipedia every every year because I use it literally every day. Um, so I did. I did look it up. You you brought us. Uh, uh, why don't you tell us the titles you you brought me today? So I brought you Mumsy Nanny, Sunny and Girly, uh, which okay. is probably more commonly known in uh, the United States and Canada just as Girly. And then Goodbye Gemini, which also had a vibrant VHS life under the title Twin Sanity. Mm, okay. I understand that now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, these movies, uh, upon researching them, um, and, and it was interesting, too, because I looked up uh, Mumsy Nanny, Sonny, and Girly first. It actually, in the Wikipedia entry, says that they this movie and Goodbye Gemini were part of... Uh, the British moral panic uh, episodes that were going on uh, starting with those movies, uh-huh. uh, which, which <laughs> after viewing them, it's, they're not that bad. Like to today's standards, like they're very timid and tame comparatively, but I can see where the 19 in 1970, where that those would be kind of an issue. They weren't bad. It's funny because I'm not myself. I'm typically as much as I like, like I said, I, I looked into a lot of that stuff when I was younger and I was really into like trying to like look at the cult movies and stuff like that. And I kind of never really gelled fully with that kind of uh, that side of things. I don't seek out a lot of that stuff. Not that I'm against it or anything like that, but I just don't seek it out. Like the stuff that Severin and Vinegar Syndrome and those boutique labels put out, they usually, I bought some stuff before and usually just terrible that's fine they're not they're not terrible movies they're just not great for me i'm just not ever entertained these movies like at first i was kind of like okay they're all right but upon like you know sitting on them for a couple of days afterward and everything i've had time to think about it but i really i actually kind of enjoyed um mumsy nanny sunny and girly i enjoyed that one a, a bit more than goodbye gemini goodbye gemini just didn't click for me but the, the the first one did girly that one was weird i think that's why i think that one was just a little bit weirder and and in a and in a fun way because i'm i'm a horror comedy guy um and that one definitely had a sensibility that what wasn't always fully out there comedy but they were definitely going for a humorous bent in it oh yeah yeah, I, I, I try to when I try to sell people on that movie, I tell them that it is the Adams family meets the beguiled with murder. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you tell us about the movie a little bit and uh, what we'll be so, uh, talking about? Mumsy Nanny, Sonny and Girly is about a family of rich, eccentric British weirdos 
and they live a 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year elaborate role-playing fantasy. They are essentially lifestyle LARPers who live out this fantasy where they are the very model of the perfect British family, and they have completely subsumed their own personal identities to their roles, which are mumsy, nanny, sunny, and girly. And because no vibrant childhood is complete without friends to play with, they habitually venture into London to kidnap bums and sex workers and people that would not generally be missed by polite society and bring them back to their manor house in order to force them to play the role of new friends. And this is probably the point where I should mention that Gurley and Sonny are in their early 20s, but dress and act like they are still in grade school. And they eventually kidnap their latest new friend, who is a professional gigolo, who decides to set about a game of psychological terrorism with his new captors, and things sort of become a more sexed up version of the prisoner. And by the end of it, he has got everybody at one another's throats and is playing this very complex game of mental chess with these crazy people out in the boonies. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it, um, <laughs> it, it, well, and, and for me, it seemed like they were mostly targeting men, um, mostly targeting them for the um, like a father role uh, to play yeah. in the house. Uh, for uh, for Mumsy, but that uh, obviously got uh, put Mumsy and Nanny at odds with each other when when they were playing, uh, and mostly because he was playing both sides. He was playing all sides. So yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, the movie is actually based on a failed stage play. So there was this uh, author named Maisie Moscow who used to write these kind of family saga books. And then she decided to dip her toes into avant-garde theater and wrote the play Mumsy Nanny, Sonny and Girly, on which, the, or no, Happy Family, excuse me. The, the original play is called Happy Family. And uh, at the time that she was staging this play, Freddie Francis, who is uh, very famous for directing uh, films for Hammer and Amicus, and also for his work as a cinematographer back in the day, had just gotten the opportunity to direct his first film where he was going to have final cuts and it was going to be his baby through and through. And he was looking for inspiration for, okay, what, what script am I going to direct? And he had decided definitively that he was going to shoot the film almost entirely at Oakley Court, which is this old manor house that today is actually a luxury hotel. But uh, back in the 1970s, it had been appropriated by the British government as public housing. And they were also renting it out for film productions. And Freddie Francis had shot several films there and fallen in love with the place and really wanted to exploit it to the fullest possible potential and shoot an entire movie inside and outside. And he and his screenwriter, this guy named Brian Comports, went to a production of Happy Family and saw the play and thought to themselves, well, this is really terrible, which it is. I've, I've read the script for the original play and it is not a good play. But they were like, this is a great jumping off point. And uh, you really picked up on something. They never explicitly bring up the absence of the father in the movie, but that's actually a major plot point in the play. 
and Freddie Francis and Brian Comport decided that they were going to make that more of a subtextual thing for the movie. Uh, but that is absolutely like something that uh, was there in the source material that got excised for the film. I can see that, like, you know, having watched it, that this definitely it's very it could it could be staged. Even this movie as it is could then be back staged as a play again it's very very contained um there's not a lot you know because they're doing it all at the house um there's a few scenes outside of the house but mostly it's it's there in the house so i could see where you could you could very easily stage this as a play and have a lot of fun with it too a very a very good sex comedy with a lot of uh intrigue and just a lot of fun and actually, uh, there, there, there's a, a theater troupe, if I recall correctly, they're called Tightrope Theater, and they did actually convert the screenplay into a stage play and then did stage it as a stage production. Awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know if anybody else has, but at least one theater troupe has done that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised. Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, I was going to say I'm surprised nobody's tried to redo <laughs> this as a movie later on, but I can see where the it's a very 1970s film. Um, it is. Real, I yeah. don't think you could really pull it off these days. Just with a it, lot of the, the people would be a little bit weirded out by it. I think <laughs> it's a very of its time movie, and it's a very yeah. British movie. Uh, yeah. uh, this is something I did not personally pick up on until I watched it with British people. But for British audiences, it's very much a movie about colonialism and the way mm. that people viewed the British government at the end of the 1960s. And it kind of reflects this uh, reassessment of Britain's role in the world during the whole swinging London era. And yeah. after I rewatched it again, after having some British friends tell me that you can really pick up on a lot of these anti-colonialist yeah. and kind of smugly anti-British themes in the movie. And so I think that's if anybody was ever going to remake it, it would have to be a British studio in order to capture that like consummate Britishness about the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, a friend of mine also told me that there's some low key piss taking on the Royal family going on in there. And that like the members of the family are kind of these backhanded uh, depictions of a couple of members of the Royal family as they were seen in 1960s London. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That I'd been a, been a, Young American, I would, I would never even would have caught that. Yeah, so that's awesome that you had some uh, British folks to uh, help clue you in on that. I gave it a three star on uh, Letterbox, and three star for me is is okay. It's 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 a movie that I enjoy and that I may or may not watch again. That's how I that's how I do my 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 grading on on Letterbox. So, um, but I, I I thought it was really good. I it's not available anywhere on Blu-ray. Or anything so you know you you told me they were on uh um, neither one of these movies and so you told me they were on youtube and they're in terrible quality they're as best as they can be for what they are but uh, i would love i would actually kind of like to see Gurley done in in a good hd quality if you know any of the elements actually exist i know you said uh i'm not sure if it was this movie or or the other movie but you said you've got material that you might be able to uh help with that yeah, so I, I've got a lot of sentimentality for Gurley because I uh, I rescued it from a VHS bargain bin in the early 2000s when my local video store was converting to DVD. 
and they were just basically giving away all of their VHSs. And I was convinced at the time, these movies are never going to get DVD releases. I never would have imagined any place like Severin or Arrow ever coming along. And so, you know, I went in there with like five bucks and scooped up an armload of VHSs and like took home like 20 tapes. And Gurley was one of those. And I just watched this thing and I was fascinated by it. And I was especially captured by the performance of Vanessa Howard, who plays Gurley, because you can really tell she really genuinely thought she was going to get the BAFTA for this. And, you know, she just swings. It was a really good performance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really thought she, she was definitely the star of the show and she, you know, for, for a movie of that type. um, I mean, just a movie in general, I thought she was really decent in that. And it's a really great performance. And she was very young when she made it. She was, I believe, in her very early 20s. Uh, she uh, she was uh, orphaned not long after she was born. And there's some confusion with her exact birth year because of uh, getting adopted by friends of the family, changing her name. That's a whole story there. But she was, you know, in her very early 20s. And a lot of the other uh, performers in there were experienced British stage performers. And, you know, she she goes toe to toe with them. And yeah. so I'd, I'd been fascinated by this movie and by Vanessa Howard for years. And then later on in life, when I was very, when I was seriously getting into writing, set out to write a biography on her. Uh, she passed away fairly young herself of COPD at the age of 62. And uh, I worked with some uh, journalists in Britain to put together a biography of her life. And in the course of that, turned up a bunch of uh, material on Gurley. Uh, hmm. that's the people who did put out the DVD release never even got their hands on the, wow. it got a very limited DVD release that very quickly went out of prints. It was put out by a place called Scorpion that I think themselves are now out of business. And hmm. prior to Scorpion obtaining the rights, there was another place that had obtained them and then just basically sat on them for years. And it was a real tragedy because they obtained the rights. Vanessa Howard was still alive. A couple of other people involved in the production were still alive. And then the company that owned the rights at the time didn't do anything with them. And Mm. in that interim between them obtaining it and then them selling it to Scorpion, all these people died. It was like in this like five year period or so, Vanessa Howard died. I think Freddie Francis died during that period. I believe a couple of other people involved with the movie died and they lost the opportunity to, Mm. you know, get them on record. And Vanessa Howard wanted to participate in the uh, special features when Scorpion got the rights, but then became too ill with COPD and died Mm. herself. And so I'd really love to see another release of this because I've got some unused uh, behind the scenes photos. I've got, you know, interviews with people, uh, you know, another one of the journalists who worked on this with me, uh, Richard Halfhides and another fellow named uh, Ron. Uh, they've got some material. So I'd really love to see this get the DVD release it deserves with all of this extra content on there because if you're even able to find a copy of the Scorpion release, yeah. they've got a radio commercial and they've got an interview with the screenwriter, Brian Comport with like the worst audio in the world. You can't understand a damn thing he's Jeez. saying. And they've got the trailer and that's it. Wow. Yeah. I, this, both of these movies just seem uh, ripe for vinegar syndrome or Severin or you know, Scorpion releasing or somebody else code red anybody that there's they put out so much of this kind of material and i'm always surprised how much there is out there that they actually (laughs) can put out 
And I'd never heard of either one of these movies either. So that, that yeah, this definitely seems like something right up their alley and seems, um, you know, yeah. maybe it's just because they can't, maybe they can't find uh, film elements and they, they want to, they, they tend to like make a 2k and 4k release, you know, kind of things. And maybe the uh, film elements just aren't available. Um, yeah. I know that Scorpion had a hard time in, uh, doing the the restoration because it was at least restored for dvd i don't know if the okay. material is there to restore it completely but uh even during freddie francis's own lifetime um as he got older and near the end of his life he said this was his own personal favorite film this was his baby this was the thing he was the proudest of and they did a retrospective film festival for him and even over there in england they couldn't even find a reel of it to include in the film festival for the director uh, so I know that there's at least elements out there for a DVD restoration. I don't know enough about the restoration process to know if they could use that for a blue or for a 4k or anything. I wonder if, um, because it was released here in the U S and from what I w- read released as girly, that if there's any extant film elements that might exist in that form, um, because it, from what I read, it had a, okay run here it actually did it was actually more successful here than it was in britain Um, yeah so i wonder if they actually have that somewhere i mean it would be really cool if this turned up in like some collector's collection of like old reels because you're absolutely right it's uh it premiered in england at the same time as goodbye gemini and then almost immediately disappeared and then it actually came to the states and played on 42nd street and got a positive write-up in variety somehow and actually did fairly well over here and made a nice amount of money. It definitely profited in the United States and Canada. Something kind of wild that I found out when I was doing research was that a uh, reel of Gurley made the rounds of U.S. Air Force bases in the United States and was like a a staple of uh, Air Force bases in the 1970s and 80s. And a a real stinker is that uh, a lot of the people involved did not know that it had premiered on 42nd Street and was making money in America. There was either a lack of communication. Yeah, Yeah. there was either a lack of communication or some creative accounting going on. But uh, when I talked to Vanessa Howard's son for the interview for the uh, biography I did of her, he told me, you know, my mom didn't know that that movie ever saw the light of day again until like the late 80s. And yeah, there's some, I don't know about some of the other people who were involved in the movie, if they were aware that it was actually profiting, but uh, yeah. Somebody was making some movie, um, making some money off of that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, the film elements might not be great, but there might be somebody, some collector, like you said, that's got a reel somewhere that maybe they don't even know that they've got and that's that's the that's the sad thing um just some movies good bad or whatever i think that all movies should be preserved in in some way at least one reel somewhere should be preserved in in good standing and from what i understand the british aren't always the best at preserving their stuff they they tend to just kind of wipe over everything and uh, yeah uh, just kind of destroy it all i know we lost a lot of doctor who episodes that way that's what i was thinking this is like a really big object lesson on that. Uh, I uh, I went over to England and visited Oakley Court where they shot the film. And while I was there, uh, one of the journalists that I worked on the piece with, Ron, 
took me over to an old film studio that's like Bray Studios that's within a stone's throw Oakley Court and told me, you know, they're going to knock this thing down. And like all these historic films had been made there in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, like these like iconic British film staples have come out of Bray. And he says they're just going to knock this thing down and like build flats there or something. And, you know, it's really illustrative of this kind of lack of appreciation for film culture over there that they'll wipe over the tapes and just knock down the studios. I couldn't imagine. I mean, sure, progress and everything, you know, and I'm all for that. But, you know, there's some, some like, you know, something to be said for historical preservation, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's insane to me how much of that, especially like you said, and that's what I was thinking of was the Doctor Who tapes that like, they just erased over everything. And, nothing exists of some of those early things they've had to go to viewers who audio tape them <laughs> and try to recreate them from that. And that's, that's just crazy to me. So, I mean, hopefully something exists out there for Gurley and at the very least put out an SD version, put out a DVD, you know, something that even if it's not the best quality, put out something with some good, like the features you have and stuff like that and, and, and get a good, at least get something preserved. It's something yeah. out there that people can own and actually see it. And it's got to be better than the YouTube version. That's, <laughs> on there. that's just terrible. I mean, it was, yeah. oh man, like both those movies are so hard to watch just for that reason. Bad. Yeah. So I, I would like to see something done with that, where you get a, a better quality, especially for the work that you've done in, in both of those scenes, something of that come to fruition would be great. Yeah, I mean, it, at least the Scorpion restoration is good, but it's a matter of if you can get your hands on it. I mean, yeah. I don't have exact numbers, but there's probably like maybe one, 2,000 DVDs max floating around out there wow. from Scorpion. Yeah. And I, I think that it's available to rent on Amazon. I did higher, see that. And I yeah. almost did that to see if it was better quality, but I was like, eh, I'm already watching it on YouTube. It'll be all right. That is the higher quality version. So okay, I mean, good. at least there are restorations bouncing around good. out there somewhere, but for the physical media collectors, you know, it was a shame that Gurley yeah. and Goodbye Gemini both got obtained by kind of smaller restoration houses that didn't survive into the Severin Vinegar Syndrome Aero Shout Factory era. And I'd really love to see one of those places get their hands on these. I think it'd be cool, actually, um, too, thinking about it. It'd actually be cool to do as a double feature disc, too. You could do both of those, especially because they were so connected mm -hmm. um, that you could do it, especially because there's probably not going to be, like you said, so many of the people are dead. There's not going to be a lot of special features. So you could combine those, put them on a good two, like, you know, even two disc, whatever. But a, a double feature set would be actually kind of cool with that. Um, and, and, and I'd absolutely love to see that happen. And then also uh, there's another film, Vanessa Howard really only starred in two movies. She starred in this and then she starred in another movie called What Became hmm. of Jack and Jill. And that has only ever been put on home video once. And it was like ripped from a VHS onto like a bargain hmm. DVD that sold for a very brief period in discount bins at grocery stores in England. Yikes. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be great to have that get released yeah. too, because again, she did this swing for the fences performance. And this time the movie didn't even get released after it was made. It sat on a shelf for oh, years man. until it was purchased by another studio. Uh, Amicus was trying to get into the kind of American grindhouse scene and they made this movie, what became a Jack and Jill. And then they watched it and they were like, 
this is a little too dark for us. We're going to go back to making ghost stories and then just let yeah. this thing sit on the shelf. Uh, so, I mean, it'd be great to even do, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of a, a triple British yeah. early seventies, British triple feature with girly Jack and Jill and goodbye Gemini. Well, did she not do more work just because these two didn't do well and she just got discouraged? Exactly. Yeah. It's a really sad story because uh, she kept having these near brushes with success. Uh, her, First big film was this uh, teen drama called uh, Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, and it got fantastic pre-release reviews. It was going to premiere at the 1968 Cannes Film Festival. People were talking like, oh, this is, you know, going to make all these people involved in it. Vanessa Howard is going to be this, you know, breakout young star. And then riots happened in, uh, riots happened and they had to cancel the Cannes Film Festival. And nobody the film ended up being a bomb then nobody even really saw it and then Gurley comes around they're going to make her a scream queen she's going to be this icon of british horror she's going to be up there with you know christopher lee and peter cushing in terms of name recognition and then Gurley gets pulled and then she gets cast in this in jack and jill for amicus and amicus is going to you know give her her second chance to be a scream queen this is what's going to make you an icon in british horror and they never release it and she just got super discouraged. Uh, you know, she had a very difficult life up to that point. Her father was a uh, World War II veteran who spent most of the war in a Nazi POW camp and then came back home from the front and almost immediately died of a brain aneurysm. Her mother died of a tuberculosis epidemic shortly thereafter. Oh. So, you know, she had this very difficult childhood. And then, you know, she gets into film and it seems like she's going to have all these big successes. And uh, what finally ended up happening was she met and married Robert Chardoff, who's the guy who produced the Rocky movies. And uh, oh, okay. he, yeah, he came over to England to produce a film. They met, they got married, and she retired from acting and moved back to the United States with him and you know, was a housewife for years. And uh, then they eventually got divorced and she spent her final years doing charity work as part of this outreach program called Ladies, which stood for Life After Divorce is Eventually Sane. And it was a uh, charity that helped women who had uh, been divorced and re-enter the workforce. Because, uh, you know, this was uh, for a generation of women who got married very young and then spent their lives as homemakers and then kind of got cast into the 80s and 90s with no professional skills or resources to find and maintain jobs. And so Vanessa Howard worked with this program that taught them typing, taught them about computers, taught them, you know, stuff they would need to enter the workforce. And that's how she lived out the rest of her life here in the United States. I admire her for that. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, she did something great with that. I mean, despite, I mean, yeah, I mean, just, I've only seen her in Gurley, but I thought she was really good. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually surprised she didn't have more success but yeah with near brushes like that i could see where and getting knocked down like two in a row that you're just like or three in a row that you're just like okay well this isn't even worth it then if i two of my movies are are gonna like just go nowhere then uh what else am i gonna do trying to think if i have any other questions about girly if you have anything else to add to that if not we can move on to goodbye gemini um, man, I could talk about Gurley for like the next two hours. <laughs> I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to monopolize. Yeah. I, I, I know more about this movie than I probably should. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, uh, let's get into goodbye Gemini. And, uh, this one I wasn't as much a fan of this one was, 
I don't know. I felt like the story was, it didn't go anywhere kind of in in my mind. It was kind of like the places I thought it was going to go. It didn't go. And this one was, this one felt really like the other one was a, a fun British kind of romp comedy with some subversiveness to it. This one was more of the time and felt very sleazy. Yeah. Um, This one I could (laughs) see definitely being a grindhouse kind of fun weirdness. I have a feeling this one wouldn't be like people wouldn't be fans of as much um, because of the the negative depiction of transvestites in it be more of a predators and stuff like that. Because I know people have a lot of problems with Dress to Kill, the Brian De Palma film, for similar reasons. And trans people don't want to be depicted as being this this negative stereotype. And, and at that time uh, in the 70s and 80s, they were always like being depicted as it's just like this. They're bad. They're going to get you. You know, and so that, that that part of it was kind of like, oh, that's not good. But overall, it was just kind of a off movie to me. Yeah, it's it's a very transgressive. It's a very subversive film. Uh, it's uh, this is also based on a, a literary source. In this case, it's uh, based on a novel called Ask Agamemnon by a woman named Jenny Hall. And it was like this minor success in the British press. It was at least exciting enough that they wanted to make a movie based on it. And I tried to read the book. I couldn't really get into it. The book tries to be kind of quasi-experimental. There's portions of the book that are written like a play, and then it switches back mm. to prose work. And it's it's got the same basic premise, but it's also told chronologically or no, it's not told chronologically, excuse me, the movie is told chronologically, the book is told out of chronological order. Hmm. Um, it's more interesting to me as a kind of object of curiosity. I completely agree right. with you. Girly is a legitimately good film versus Goodbye Gemini, which I think is an interesting film. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They, I didn't, I didn't find it. I didn't not I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it either. And it, but I did find it interesting just as, again, like I said, kind of being more about 1970s England, drug, hippie culture, that counterculture, like an underground queer culture, you know, we all knew existed at that time, but nobody talked about. And it's, uh, that was one of the, Goodbye Gemini was definitely the more controversial of the two films. And because it came out alongside of it, Gurley kind of got taken along for the ride. But uh, Goodbye Gemini is definitely the one that's kind of raised the initial moral panic flag because, you know, you brought this up, it does have that negative depiction of trans people with the uh, the scene set in the whorehouse where they, they yeah. attack the brother. Uh, but then at the same time, the movie also seems to be struggling with how it feels about underground queer culture overall, because yeah. you know, it's also got a lot of very sympathetic depictions of queer and yeah. trans individuals. And uh, one of the scenes near the beginning of the film was actually shot at a uh, a trans club where you uh, see them watching the uh, performers on stage. And, you know, it's a that scene is a very positive depiction. And then the film also feels kind of confused about how it feels about the brother character who seems to be kind of low-key queer coded. And so it's interesting to me because I feel that for that time coming from a filmmaker of that generation, you, you can really feel this tug of war of trying to feel positive about queer culture, but maybe not necessarily having the vocabulary for it because of the time and place that these filmmakers came from. And it's, you know, it's a very interesting 
piece of art from that era for that reason for me. Yeah, I could see that push and pull with that, like the the negative aspects, but also some of the positive aspects. It did feel like maybe possibly, and this is just me supposing that the director writer was going more for a, they were going for the positive queer aspect of it and wanted to highlight that, but also had to put in some of that, uh, the negative aspects because they knew that it wouldn't play unless they had that and because that was how everybody was depicted at that time in queer culture. Yeah, I believe at the time, uh, homosexuality was still a prosecutable crime in England. And so even by just depicting that in a film that they intended to be a major release was breaking a major taboo. Yeah. Um, you know, this was also uh, around the period of the Cray twins and this kind of homosexual panic because of the scandal that they were tangentially linked to with this uh, member of parliament. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, really played into a lot of anxieties that uh, people felt in England at the time. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, uh, outside of the, the the queer aspects of it. So both movies have a brother and sister combo that is very incestuous. It's more clear in Goodbye Gemini that the brother wants the sister, sort of. It's more, it doesn't come off fully incestuous, but definitely more of a, it's just like, I don't want anybody else but you from the brother's perspective. Whereas the sister's like, well, you know, I want to be you know, with these other people. And he and it's not fully explored, which I understand 1970s. Um, <laughs> and then uh, in Gurley, it's they're obviously not brother and sister, or we're meant to assume they're not brother and sister, but they're playing the roles of brother and sister because of that whole family role play thing they, they all have going on. Um, we're just assuming they're not really brother and sister. But you're getting this weird incestuous vibe on both movies where with the first one with Gurley, it's a lot more playful. It's a lot more, you know, just, you know, and it's only done a couple of times. Whereas in uh, goodbye Gemini, it's really kind of a, a subtext of the whole movie is that this brother really doesn't. And like you said, he's queer coded so that it's almost like he wants the sister to, so that he's fighting against that, that his own queerness. That, and that's how I felt about it was that that's, that's how I read it. And it was interesting in that, in that, in that way. Yeah. It's interesting to me from like a, a psychological angle, because the movie does play so much with what is going on in this guy's head. You know, is it that yeah. he's trying to sublimate his gay urges by transferring them to his sister, which, you know, is its own whole yeah. thing. Yeah, it, own or, whole bag of bees. Does, so. does he want to, be his sister there's also like this kind of yeah. you know, weird, weird idea that it's like he loves her because he wants to be her and it's like even the the original tagline for the movie was i am you and you are me uh and so you know it's very interesting it's i, I don't want to say it's like this like completely accurate psychological portrayal of somebody in uh an emotional and psychological turmoil but it is a lot right. more of a complex psychological portrait than you would expect from uh an exploitation film yeah yeah definitely i think that um i think it's something that the movie the the movie doesn't quite know where it's going with any of these any of these thoughts and ideas that it's having 
And I think that's where I'm left cold with the movie in general is it doesn't know what it wants to be. Does it want to be the psychological drama about this man and and his queerness? And, And that may be where they're trying to go with it, but maybe because I'm not queer that I don't see that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing as much as I can, but maybe I'm not reading as much into it as somebody who is queer, who watches it, that they would get more out of it. Um, and maybe I, yeah. that maybe the story beats would hit better in that way. And I'd really love that perspective. And a couple of uh, gay friends of mine, I've told them, you know, I'd love for you to watch this movie and get your perspective yeah. on it and, and write about it. Cause uh, everybody I know who has seen this movie I think I'm the only guy I know who's seen this movie and everybody else I know who's seen this movie is a straight woman. Uh, So I I would really love to read like an academic breakdown and assessment and analysis of this from a queer perspective. I think that would be fantastic. And I mean, there's so many different perspectives. Yeah. There's so many different perspectives you can take on this too, because also one of the interesting things for me narratively is it's kind of a, uh, a decentered rape revenge movie where you've got not only a man getting raped, but then Mm -hmm. he doesn't even avenge his own rape, his sister avenges it. And so that's, I would really love to hear somebody who has a academic breakdown, academic backgrounds in writing about rape revenge movies to hear their perspective on this as a rape revenge film. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many different avenues that you can go down with this movie. As, As much as it didn't completely vibe with me, I do agree that there's so many because of that there's so many different perspectives you can go down with what all is going on and as an exploitation film it it it's it was interesting to me too because it's not it's not particularly horror it is but it's not in terms of you know traditional slasher type horrors or whatever there's only a couple of actual murders going on in it and it's interesting the effect that the one murder has on them towards the end Whereas the first murder that they they commit together doesn't have that same effect, mm-hmm. and it, it it was an odd. That was a, another dis, disconnect for me too. Was because they get with the murder that they commit at the end, like that just that traumatizes both of them so badly. But the one that they did in the beginning of the movie didn't seem to have any negative effect on them at all. Everything was hunky dory. They just went about their lives. And yeah. it, 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 that's the, that was another issue where I was like, well, why are they getting so upset about this one now? I, I would really love to know if the first one you're talking about where they throw the maid down the stairs towards the yeah. beginning of the movie. Yeah, I'd really love to know if they had to put that in there in order to help them sell this as a horror movie. Because the, the original advertising art for this really leans heavily into the horror aspect. You know, they uh, they put the bed sheets on before they stab the guy near the end. And like yeah. all the original advertising art was them in the bed sheets holding bloody knives. knives. Yeah. yeah, and that was the imagery that the marketing campaign was built around. And so I almost wonder yeah. if at some point somebody said, hey, you've got to have them kill somebody at the beginning of the movie to keep the audience in their seats until they kill another person near the end of the movie. Uh, yeah. yeah. I actually, you know, if you take that part out from the beginning that you can see, this is more of the, like you said, like a, a, a queer rape revenge story that only involves that, that last murder. And with that, you can see where, if that's the case that they added that, you know, later 
I can, I, I really can like now the wheels are turning about like what this movie really gets into because that first part, like that first part seems kind of disjointed compared to the rest of the movie. Cause the rest of the movie is just them. It really is them getting into this queer subculture. They go to the, they go to the club and they meet uh, the guy they meet. I can't remember his name now. Uh, Clive uh, the pimp. The, yes. They meet Clive and they go to his parties and everybody's like, Oh, these twins, they're, they're awesome so magical and everything and you know there <laughs> and so it's and it's interesting to see that and definitely i i get that more without that beginning part you get more of a of a more heavily queer like it already is but like if you take out that first part you get a more heavily queer toned movie that is definitely that rape revenge story that you said i mean it's already there anyway you, you could take out that just wipe that away but that does feel tacked on now yeah you're absolutely right it's a rare instance of a movie being less than the sum of its parts because you can really see all the stuff that we're talking about here this is all great material for a movie but you can really tell that the people who made it weren't 100 sure what to do with it um i have the dvd of this as well that also had a limited release and uh, judy geeson is actually on a commentary track on it and I believe there's another guy in there. I want to say it's the director, but don't quote me on that. And they don't even really know what to say about it or, or how to assess it. There's like entire like five, 10 minute long stretches of the, uh, the commentary that are just completely silent. And at one point they go off on a tangent talking about Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter. And the the impression that you get is that like they delved into this like club subculture at the uh, height of swinging London and kind of fell in love with it and just basically decided to hang out there and kind of have the cameras rolling while they were there. Right. And that that's where a lot of the movie came from. Yeah. Uh, Cause you know, Judy Geeson mentioned several times on the uh, commentary, how this movie is really a time capsule of a particular place and culture in London that got lost. And she said something along the lines of you want to know, what it was like to be young and alive and in the London club underground in 1969. Like this is a really great snapshot of that. Uh, Hmm. But I I really get the impression that like, they just found all these places and people and fell in love with those places and those people and just hung out there and then kind of made a movie at the same time. Right. They took a few ideas, kind of mashed them together into yeah. uh, (laughs) <laughs> into what they what they thought was a movie but yeah it's it definitely the the sum of its parts or don't add up um no it, it's it doesn't succeed as a movie but definitely upon reflection you can definitely go down a lot of avenues of of study and uh re- really kind of get some good stuff like you said you know, the, the the queer subculture of the time the the rape revenge aspect just exploitation films in general there's so much you could actually bite off and just talk about just that little bit of each one and again this feels like a movie that you know severin or, or vinegar syndrome or any of those other ones could put out easily and do fairly okay with i think that both of these are going to typically what happens with those kind of boutique labels and stuff they're movies that most people know. And I think that both of these movies are so unknown that that's going to be the issue is the, the sell on, on those regardless of, especially with Gurley, like Gurley is a good movie. I think that definitely 100% deserves a, a great release, but I do think that goodbye Gemini 
could also you benefit from that kind of a good release. Like we said, because of that, if you we could get some good queer uh, consideration on that, people talking about that, like taking a look at it and giving us their perspectives on it, I think that that could be some good reading. Yeah, and it's a, you know it's also very valuable as a, as a historical artifact, and I think that's really how you would yeah. have to sell Goodbye Gemini exactly. because you know this was responsible for a big backlash against mm-hmm. horror and quote immorality in the British media. Uh, you know, this came out and this really caused this big moral panic that, you know, Gurley got kind of tacked onto. Yeah. The, the really interesting thing is that at the time, people weren't really bothered so much by any of the queer stuff in Goodbye Gemini. It's like mm-hmm. that was there and people didn't feel 100% good about it, but they were kind of like, eh, it, it was yeah. really the incest stuff. They were afraid that movies were going, they were really afraid that movies were going to cause everybody in Britain to start fucking their family members. There there was like this actual like terror, like, oh no, goodbye Gemini and Gurley are going to turn the impressionable youth of England into a bunch of incestuous freaks. And that wow. was really where the big backlash and moral panic came from. And then the the violence kind of rode on the coattails of that. They were also, oh, these these films are so gruesome in their depictions of violence. And and weirdly, Gurley got more attention for its violence where you do not even see a drop of I was going to say, you don't movie. see anything. You do like, not everything see Everything is off screen. Mm-hmm. You see a guy. And even in Goodbye Gemini, I don't think anything's on screen either. Like maybe you get flashes of something, I think, with the second murder, but like most of that's off screen as well. Uh huh. Like, it, it's, it's amazing. The amount of stuff that some of these movies, especially in the 70s, got where there's barely anything on screen mm-hmm. and they're getting, you know, censored left and right. It's it's a, it's it amazes me the the moralities and sensibilities of people who had to deal with this stuff. It's like not like we see stuff that's worse on TV these days, like the stuff that's. Uh, <laughs> That was what was crazy about it. I mean, when you told me about this, I started looking it up. I was like, okay, so these are going to be kind of pushing the envelope. And I looked at it. I was like, where? There's nothing in either one of these. that's really that bad. And, yeah, I, and again, yeah. I, I didn't even consider the incest angle as the problem, the moral panic stuff. I totally thought it was going to be the queer stuff. So that's it interesting. Was- it was the incest. The incest really tripped people out. And I mean, you know, especially with Gurley, it's much more low key and goodbye Gemini. And there's one scene in Gurley. It's near the very beginning of the film and Sonny offers her a piece of candy. The candy. And, yep. Yeah. And when she takes it out of his hand, she, she kind of licks his thumb and people just lost their absolute shit over that. And we're like, this is the most reprehensible thing that has ever been committed to film and everybody involved needs to be shot. And the funny thing is, is I think that the incestuous overtones and Goodbye Gemini are a lot worse. Like they're a lot more overt than they are in Gurley because the Gurley, that's that one scene. And beyond Mm -hmm. that, there's a couple of, I guess, the bath scene in Gurley is a little bit like kind of goofy and everything, but it's more playful. Like it's for that, it was always more playful and more childlike in a way, I guess that's how they played it. And so it comes off as more to me, it came off as more silly. Maybe in 1970, it didn't come off as silly, but the stuff that was in goodbye Gemini was much more over much more 
because they were actual brother and sister. And then they were like, he was just like, I don't want anybody but you and everything. I can see where that one would have been the issue. And because like I said, between that and the queer stuff and and just everything kind of in that movie, I can see where that one would have been more of the issue for sure. And Gurley just, like you said, got you know, caught in its wake. Yeah. Just for the, the one scene mostly. Yeah. So yeah, I, it drives me crazy, the sensibilities of, you know, and I get it, you know, 1970, fine, whatever, but you know, it's, we see a lot worse stuff on TV, on oh, network TV these days. The most subversive sexual material in either of those films, which is probably in Goodbye Gemini, pales in comparison to your average episode of Law and Order SVU. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're seeing like, we're seeing way worse stuff on SVU, especially. Is, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. I mean, and that, and I mean, to be fair, that's good. I'm glad that our changing mores have happened that you can see that stuff on, on SVU now and in, in, in broadcast television, because I mean, we're still living in the, we're getting weirdly, there's this weird repression happening again in society. Uh, we're starting to see it, especially, um, you see it on uh, quote unquote film Twitter that there's a lot of people who are railing against, you know, sex and cinema and, and, you know, sex scenes in general. And it's just like, just let it be. We just recorded a podcast episode about silent night, deadly night. In the first movie, there's some long lingering shots of, of nudity and lovemaking and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, my kids are both adults, but uh, they, uh, they were just both, we, we were all joking on the episode about just like, wow, that, that was a lot for, for them now, but you know, it was just, it was, it was interesting because in uh, 84, when that, when the first Silent Night, Daily Night came out, I'm surprised that like got, I mean, obviously Silent Night, Daily Night got banned pretty quickly, (laughs) but that wasn't even the reason it was the killer Santa. It wasn't even the sex that was in it. So it's just funny. And you don't see anything like that really in, even in modern horror. I mean, maybe in low budget independent fare but uh, you're not seeing a lot of that in uh, in studio fare anymore so studios have kind of really shied away from that shied away from the erotic thriller that we had in the 90s it's weird there is a weird sanitization going on in uh, filmmaking these days yeah it's interesting and i, I think i, I kind of get the psychology behind it because you know there has been a lot of talk in the discourse about the male gaze and like objectification yeah. and it's this over course correction because just because you have a sex yeah. scene in a film doesn't mean that you're necessarily objectifying the woman in the sex scene or that you're objectifying anybody in the sex scene. There's a way to do it right, but it almost feels like Hollywood has said, well, we're just not going, we would rather not do it, not do it at all rather than do it right. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting over course correction. And then I'm also, yeah. you know, very, very interested by what you're talking about film Twitter, film Twitter also, you know, patently a lot of people do not just, just do not want sex scenes in films. And part of me is not surprised just because of the way that's different uh, social mores kind of rotate through the generations. I can't yeah. remember his name, but there was this, sociologist who theorized that there's kind of like these set patterns for generations and I think he came up with the idea that there's like four generational types that society constantly cycles through and based on this Hmm. theory the upcoming generation are sort of the new Victorians who had this kind of uh 
you know, repressive sensibility in public and then more of a loose sense in privates. And so the idea mm. that we're maybe seeing a 2020s iteration of the Victorians who are pushing back against uh, sex and cinema doesn't necessarily surprise me. Then again, at the same time, it does because it happens so quickly. I wouldn't have thought that that would happen uh. for another couple of generations. Uh, you know, I think you and I are probably about the same age. And, you know, you and I grew up trying to sneak peeks on late night cable and, you know, watching scrambled Cinemax. Blurry uh, Skinemax. Yeah. Yeah. Just hoping for a glimpse of something. And then already yeah. just the next generation immediately has, you know, the pendulum has swung in the complete opposite direction without there being any stopping points on that trajectory. I think it's an interesting dichotomy too, because not only do we have this call for some repression in the media that we consume, I guess, in the mass media type of stuff that we consume, but while also at the same time advocating for sex workers and sex work in general. Um, So I think it's a weird dichotomy that we're like, okay, everybody's able to do what they want sexually, but we don't want to see it. Um, And and that's fair. Don't get me wrong. But I do find it uh, as, as a weird dichotomy. I don't find it hypocritical, but it's just odd. It's an odd weirdness to it that we live in this day and age where you can advocate for that, but then go, well, but I don't want to see it in, in, in the movies or TV that we make. So. Yeah, and it's, it's another interesting kind of like uh, parallels to the Victorians. You know, the same people who gave us the vibrator also gave us the taboo about showing somebody's ankles in public. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I kind of, it's kind of that same dichotomy that you're talking about there. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's interesting for sure. I think I'm, if your Wikipedia bio is correct, I think I'm about uh, 11 years older than you because I was born in uh, 74. Okay. And uh, so I grew up uh, heavily in the eighties and uh, I don't look on it as fondly as everybody else does. Um, <laughs> it's a, it was a weird time. Not that I look on it negatively at all, but I just don't look at it through the, uh, the neon tinted glasses that everybody else does. But yeah, I mean, you know, the Reagan era, it was that weird pushback on repression that we had. And I feel like that's, what's going to happen is we're going to get this because there's so much of that repression going on in terms of the mass media, at least the big corporate medias that you're going to get on the smaller scale, you're going to start getting more of these. And especially because we do have avenues now uh, with streaming and uh, independent filmmaking and such like that, that you're going to get a lot more of that pushback on that edge of that sexuality. We're going to see that a little bit, you know, maybe from hopefully from, you know, good people making good stuff. And, and I think that's, what's better about like better and worse about what we're at right now is that we have so many avenues of distribution. We've got all the streamers and ways of putting out your own stuff. If you, if you want to make your own movie, if you can, we have, we have the technology now that you can make it fairly inexpensively. You can make a, a decent looking movie and put it out on Blu-ray and put it out independently all on your own. And you can you know, find some modicum of success where we didn't have that in the eighties. You know, it was, you either had to go corporate media companies or, you know, we had direct to video, but you still had to get it into the stores. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot harder back then. Whereas now it's all digital distribution. You can just put your stuff, stuff online, even if you don't want to put it on Blu-ray going back to 
Gurley and Goodbye Gemini that those kind of movies now I don't think would have they wouldn't be released on major studios but they wouldn't they wouldn't have a hard time something similar maybe not exactly those in that way but we see similar things being put out on streamers and uh, through independent distribution and I think that's in a way it's like really great I just wish the streamers would put stuff out on physical releases uh, it kills me that there's stuff that's on Netflix that they're just not putting on Blu-rays. Um, it, it just drives me nuts. There's so many good things. Like I literally bought the first two seasons of uh, Stranger Things. I love that show, but they haven't even put out season three on Blu-ray because I'm just like, look, I'm going to watch it on Netflix. I'm still going to watch it there, but I want those as backup in case something happens like Netflix. Cause not every corporation survives, you know, Netflix is doing great right now, but they're spending a lot of money and eventually that money's going to dry up and you know, new subscribers are going to go away and they're not going to, there's too many streamers, too much choice now. So. And, you know, speaking of the eighties, you know, you, you, you and I were both around for this. Uh, it, it's weird with the streaming wars. Now it's almost like we're seeing like cable happening again. Yep. yep. And, you know, remember you had to get HBO individually, you had to get uh, Cinemax individually. And then eventually you had the carriers come along and get all these channels and then you got to get them as a bundle. I'm really waiting for eventually. And uh, I think Disney really kind of threw down the gauntlet on this with like, you know, getting that the the bundle Disney of like, Plus, yeah. ESPN and bundle. Yep. I'm really waiting for new corporations to come along and get Netflix, get Hulu. Yeah. Gobble get, all that up. And yeah. Just, you know. And then, you know, you're subscribing to, you know, the Mega Max service or whatever it's going to be called. <laughs> and you get, oh, I got Netflix and Hulu and Paramounts and uh, HBO all in this bundle. It's weird. Well, you kind, it's surreal. You kind of see that already because with Paramount Plus, you're getting all the CBS shows. You're getting all the uh, Nickelodeon shows, MTV, all that stuff that was owned by them um, with uh, uh, what was the other one I was just going to say? Oh, HBO Max. You know, you get, uh, you know, all the Warner Brothers stuff, Cartoon Network. You're getting DC properties. Everything's being bundled into those services. And that's what makes them more attractive in that way is you don't get just HBO stuff. You're getting all this other stuff as well. And I think that's what makes Netflix interesting too, because they are, they're kind of still an outlier to all of that. They're making good quality stuff. That's not part of anything else. And I subscribe to subscribe to it all. It's still cheaper than what cable was. Mm -hmm. I get like, I get Netflix, I get Hulu, Disney plus Paramount, HBO max. I get it all. And it's still much cheaper than cable ever was. I mean, and, and now if I want to watch something, I can go watch specifically that one thing. I don't have to wait for it to be on HBO. I don't mm-hmm. have to wait for it to pop up and go, okay, I got to time this or I got to record this. <laughs> no, I just got to go watch it. So I think that in some ways it's a lot better. It's, it's definitely, there's, there's a lot of streaming networks now and it's pretty crazy. But and that's the same thing too, and that's why I'm glad that, um, like you said, that Gurley and Goodbye Gemini are both available on uh, Amazon Prime for rent, and should be better quality than what we found on YouTube. So, uh, so if anybody is wanting to check out uh, these movies, and I and I highly suggest you do, uh, Gurley especially is really fun. It's called Mumsy Nanny Sunny and Gurley on there. Uh, don't just look up Gurley, although you could find it under Gurley and Goodbye Gemini, while not being like a great movie. I think that it is an interesting highlight of the culture at that time 
like you said, in London, Mm -hmm. um, probably 1969 when it was filmed. It was released in 1970. For that in itself, I think is an interesting thing. And like you said, to to I really like like you said, I really want to find out from a queer perspective what they think of the movie. And it's one of those things where it's kind of disappointing because it's not widely available. It is widely available through Amazon Prime, but through uh, a, a disc or whatever that people might be sleeping on it and uh, and aren't getting the uh, the attention that uh, it could be getting. Uh, just in terms of academic study, even just a, uh, I'd like to hear that perspective for sure. Yeah, you know, you, you, it's, a, it, it's an interesting point because it is widely available on Amazon, but who knows it's there? Yeah, uh, you have to you actively know, search for it. You have to know about it. And these movies are both so unknown. Exactly. If you don't know about them, you're never going to look for them. So, you know, I'm glad you brought them to my attention. I definitely would have never known uh, that they existed and probably would have never watched them uh, independently, even through all the various stuff. Cause I've been a big movie fan since I was a kid, but it wasn't until you know my twenties when I really got heavily into movies. I'm more of a uh, more mainstream, I'd probably say in what I watch, but uh, uh, the works of uh, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino kind of kicked me off into a lot of that paying more attention to filmmakers rather than just you know movies in general so that helped in a, in a lot of ways guide me down a path of like i said going to college to be a film major and then reading the books that i did like sleazoid express but horror movies in general i kind of was always like i like them but hadn't really gotten into them heavily until and because my kids were young and didn't like them at the time that I just didn't watch too many of them when they were about. And so it wasn't until they were older and I ran across some stuff that took me back into horror movies and in a big way. And now since about 2018, I've been really heavily focused on horror movies. And so I'm trying to like gobble everything up that I've missed and like, you know, new stuff, old stuff, like everything. I've missed so much stuff. And like I haven't even seen, I've seen maybe the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre once and I haven't seen any of the others. And I know those are, you know, iffy in quality and everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's a lot that, you know, and it was the same thing. Halloween was a huge blind spot for me. I think I'd only seen the first three before the 2018 one had come out. And yeah, and exactly <laughs> the first three, first three, I'm okay with beyond that. The rest are kind of like, no, 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 I've seen them. Really, I mean, I'm going to end up watching them all again because uh, I'm, you know, the part of the purpose of this podcast is to show my kids a bunch of these movies too, and so uh, I'm much more of a Friday the Thirteenth fan. Like uh, that, and uh, Scream is huge for me. Scream, you know, in the terms of slashers, Scream is high bar. You Definitely know, the a, series with the most consistent quality. Oh yeah, you know, I mean that that's what I that's what I love about Scream: consistent quality. And um, consistency of characters, you know, you the the, the storyline continues through each movie. There's no like they tried with Friday the Thirteenth. They tried with Nightmare on Elm Street. It just doesn't work because there's no consistency. And uh, you know, even with uh, in Halloween, they didn't even try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've tried. They've tried multiple times. It's just nothing has stuck. I do like the new ones. I like 2018, and I like Kills. As much as Kills gets hated on, I actually thought it was okay. It was actually my favorite 
in a while because it was entertaining, you know, regardless of anything else, I was entertained. So I've been, I've been trying to watch a lot of this stuff. And recently I've been on a Jalo oh, watch because cool. I've never watched any Jalo movies. And those have been kind of inconsistent for me. Uh, there's been a couple of high spots, but uh, for the most part, I find the stuff that is more referential to Jalo to be better in my in my opinion and i know i'm gonna get hate for that <laughs> but um and i haven't seen everything yet i haven't seen some of the the big ones but i did like uh blood and black lace by mario bava one of the early ones just stylistically that one was just really interesting and fun and deep red by dario argento suspiria by dario argento were you know even though suspiria kind of giallo ish but the stuff that i did dig was last night in soho that was to me that was so giallo inspired with more modern storytelling it clicked better for me than a lot of that uh, older stuff and i think that's typically what my issues with older work is it's just that modern storytelling is so i wouldn't say advanced but it's so much more it's more i don't know how to explain it it's more it sophisticated it, it, it's yeah storytelling is just better in a lot of ways there's more nuance not that they didn't have nuance back then it felt like a lot of the stuff pre-80s and earlier just is kind of like more in your face, more there, there are subtleties for sure. And like we said, there's a lot of stuff that goodbye Gemini and with Gurley, there's a lot of layers to both of these that you can, you can get down into. And I don't know if that's all meant to be, but I think that's from a later perspective, you can look at that stuff. And that, and that for me is interesting to go back and look at some of these movies and uh, reassess in a way and look at them from the modern sensibility, the modern thought that, what were these movies trying to say? And even if they weren't trying to say this, what are we now reading into them? What, what perspectives can we gain from that? And maybe update some of this stuff. I, I think Gurley could be in a way, I think it could be done again in, in, in an interesting subversive way that would be fun. If you get the right filmmakers to do it, Yeah, that, that movie, that movie, especially I think could, could be really well done. He's he's not British. I said you would need a British person to do this, but I think that he could bring the right sensibility to it. I would love to see Taika Waititi take oh, a turn yeah. at Gurley with his sense of yeah. humor and the like simultaneous irreverence and heart that he can bring to stuff. I would really love to yeah. see what he could do with a 2020 iteration of Gurley. Yeah. Cause you you could take some some of the weird things out that might bother people, the incestuous nature of, of a part of it but even that might actually like as long as you made sure that they that you understood that they were not really brother and sister that you could really kind of play that up even and i could see like you could make this into an actually like a really fun romp mm-hmm. um of a movie and uh, like a modern sex comedy of sorts that would really be i think fun and yeah taika waititi definitely has that kind of sensibility that i think would work really well for that that would be pretty cool I don't have anything more to say on either one of those movies. I think we've said a lot. I know you could probably talk hours (laughs) upon hours about both of them. Was there anything? uh, I don't know if you uh, have any extra stuff that you, like you mentioned about Gurley um, in researching Goodbye Gemini, Gemini, uh, if you had found anything that. Not uh, so much. Like I said, Goodbye Gemini is more interesting to me as this kind of curiosity and is this uh, historical artifact versus Gurley, which I just genuinely, thoroughly, truly love as a movie. Uh, So that's the one where I've put more work into it and done more research on it and have more of this, you know, realm of knowledge surrounding the film itself. 
I mean, it makes sense. I mean, like, Early is obviously the better movie. It's the more <laughs> um, fully formed in a way, whereas the other one just seems like ideas that in Goodbye Gemini, uh, there's ideas there that don't seem to gel fully. There's multiple things going on that could come together that just don't uh, fully. And like I said, it's not a terrible movie. It's just not good enough. I think, yeah, because they got lumped together, I think that that really kind of put a dent in Gurley and yeah, um, where that one could have been a, a much better success. And I'm glad to hear that it, uh, you know, had had some run of better success in the States, even despite the original makers of the movie not getting any seen any profit from that. Uh, but yeah, I, d- I definitely think that one's ripe for uh, both of these movies are really ripe for some uh, more uh, attention and some study on the on them to uh, bring them to light a little bit more. So, well, thank you. I appreciate you coming on yeah. and talking about. It. I appreciate you, te- you know, exposing me to these movies and uh, yeah, fun, th- uh, yeah. Th- th- thanks for having me and yeah, yeah, thanks for giving a platform to these movies. And uh, you know, if there are any writers out there listening to this who uh, are a member of the LGBT community and are interested in watching and writing about Goodbye Gemini for the Daily Grindhouse please hit me up on Twitter. I would be very interested in seeing that perspective and running that. Uh, So uh, hit me up about that. And uh, thank you. I really appreciate having me on. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I, uh, you know, love to have you on again. Talk some other weird movies. I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks again to Preston Fossil for joining us and talking about his new book, Landis, the story of a real man on 42nd street. Since the time of this recording, I finished the book And it's a fascinating portrait of Bill Landis and his life, especially in regards to his time writing about the culture of 42nd Street. Definitely highly recommended. Preston is welcome back anytime, and we've already made plans to do another episode with some less obscure movies next time. So, until next time, stay creepy. (laughs) 